The Common Good presents a special conversation with Eric Prince, Chairman of Frontier Services Group on Afghanistan, a new approach. Um, he went to Princeton. What you probably don't know is that when he graduated from Princeton, his first job was with Ralph Nader. He was actually one of Nader's crusaders. Now, what you probably do know is that when he graduated from Harvard Law School, he went to go work for his new father-in-law, Richard Nixon, in his campaign for president. And Ed has had a very long storied career. He's worked for three U.S. presidents. He's worked in a variety of governmental positions, in addition to his long law practice here in New York. Um, it would take all night for me to run through all of his various appointments. Uh, but I think one of the ones he's the most proud of is that he is a trustee of the State University of New York, where he was responsible for um, actually authorizing charter schools. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce Ed Cox. Actually, Joe, one thing you want to crush, I never worked for President Nixon. I was actually more interested in his daughter than him, <laughs> having met in high school. So. <laughs> Uh, but I did travel a lot with them, in particular, and it was quite a great experience. And we have another, and I know you're more interested in hearing from Eric than from me, but just very briefly. Uh, Eric Prince, if you just want to describe him briefly, he was a Navy SEAL. He founded this little company called Blackwater, uh, which uh, was one of the most successful private uh, security contracting organizations in history. Uh, he sold that company and he's now the chairman of Frontier Service Group. But that doesn't describe the character of Eric Prince. He actually started at the Naval Academy, decided that was not his cup of tea. He went to a college called Hillsdale. And at Hillsdale, he learned some very basic values that he thought were very important about the individual entrepreneur, which actually Eric, your father, was. He built up a company in the Netherlands. Uh, and no, actually, Holland, Michigan. What's that? Holland, Michigan, in the United Holland, States. Holland, Michigan? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Interesting. Okay. I thought it was the Netherlands. But he built up a company which uh, made a nice size company. He was an entrepreneur. And, uh, it, uh, and, he, uh, uh, and he learned, and he, he basically absorbed his basic values uh, about entrepreneurialism and a free enterprise system and how important it was. And he became interested in the politics of the Soviet Union and uh, how the Politburo and how that worked and the contrast of it. And our ideals were something worth fighting for. And, uh, and that's what Blackwater was about in many ways. What it, was, it was not just a private security group. It did a lot more than that around the world, and I'm sure he will he will describe that describe that to you. But while he was at his Hillsdale, he was did a very usual thing. He was a volunteer fireman at the same time. I don't know anyone who grew up in a small community. I happen to spend a lot of time in West Hampton Beach growing up, and they have a volunteer fire department. That's a big deal in any community. And for an outsider, a student to come in there is quite something. Uh, and uh, yet Eric did that, and he managed to learn a lot in the process. And that to be a leader, you have to first be a follower. That's one of Eric's mottos. And if you're going to go into this, you have to first do everything better than everyone else. You have to learn to follow them and do it, and then you become one of the group. And he commits that group of volunteer firemen. He deserved to be one of them, and he succeeded in that even while he was learning some basic things about different forms of government and what was worth fighting for and what, what was not. Um, but one other thing, and I'd kind of like to close in introducing with this, Dan. Uh, what, what did he really learn from his college experience that, that served him throughout life? Fall down two times, get up three. Uh, uh, let me introduce you, an entrepreneur, a businessman, a defender of our values, Eric Prince. Thank you, sir. So uh, 
Before I get started, let me just say uh, I've been paying attention to Afghanistan longer than uh, I would say most of you have. Um, I actually sponsored Aluya Yirga, which is a tribal council back in 1997 already, because uh, we were trying to get Zahir Shah, who was the, the ancient king, to come back from Rome, where he had been in exile, to go back to Afghanistan, to have a big conference, and to make a deal with the Taliban to bring peace there. And that was in 1997 four years before the terrible attack. Um, Rome was a little too enticing for the king, and we couldn't get him to go back, uh, and the rest is history. But as we think about Afghanistan, um, uh, you know, with my old company, we were there on the ground already in April of 2002, and had been all over the country. We had operations all over the country. I used to have 26 aircraft in the country flying and doing support for the U.S. mission there. So everything I'm talking about here is not a theoretical exercise. It's something that we've done in the past um, over these last 15 years. I spoke at Oxford in April this year in the U.K. And while I was preparing for that talk, uh, I got to thinking about what has worked in the past in that region, particularly when it comes to building indigenous forces. and. Um, I also thought about it because I have a number of sons. Between my wife and I, we have 12 kids, kind of a double Brady Bunch family. She had five, I had seven. Together, 12, eight boys, a, a couple of which will be in the military in the next couple of years. And the idea of them going to Afghanistan to get blown up or dead in what I think has been a very poorly run, drifting war, I couldn't tolerate it. So I wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal with an audience of one in mind. And sure enough, the president read it, and he circled it, and he called in the national security advisor and said, just in Afghanistan, billion dollars a week, and we're losing, okay? Afghan army cannot stand and fight as it is now. They're steadily losing territory. If the reason for us, the United States, to be in Afghanistan is to deny terror sanctuary, we are failing, because half the country is terror sanctuary right now. It is not under the control of the government. It's under the control of the Taliban or ISIS. And remember, the Taliban is indistinguishable from Al-Qaeda. They continually pledge allegiance to each other. There's continual mutual support back and forth. So again, you know, open air victory parade here of ISIS uh, and Taliban fighters. When I went to see Secretary Mattis, this was, uh, this was in June, and he said, why do you think we need, because in my article I said, we have to change the rules of engagement because it's very bureaucratic, it's a big problem the way it is now. And he said, why do you think you need to do that? And then I laid out these pictures uh, like this, and this is an open air victory parade of the Taliban with captured US equipment, and that's 60 miles from a US air base in Afghanistan. So, Broad daylight, enemy, not afraid, because the targeting cycle in the United States, if you're, if you're a troop in contact or if you see the enemy in that kind of group and you have to call a lawyer who's sitting a thousand plus miles away in an air-conditioned cubicle, it's not a very serious way to wage war. And that happens again and again. I can put up more pictures than you have time for here of that. So the policy options pull out. In which case, you'd have the Taliban and ISIS battle flag flying over the US Embassy in a matter of weeks. Do another huge surge. That didn't work the first time. You had as many as 140,000 Western soldiers there doing the fighting in Afghanistan. Enough of that, okay? Continue the same path, which is pretty much what they're doing now. They got an additional uh, almost 4,000 troops to go back in, uh, but that's not really going to, uh, to change the effect. This is the strategy I recommend, item four. What does it mean? And what we want to do? We want to deny terror sanctuary, okay? We're not there for nation building. We're there to prevent planning, organizing, training of significant terrorist attacks outside of Afghanistan against the United States. Curtail the endless expenditure of blood and treasure. Right now you have about 15,000 troops. This plan would take it down to 2,000 and eventually go to zero. Reduce the contractors in country from 26,000 now, that's going to 29,000 
right? So don't view this as an expansion of contractors. This is a significant reduction in contractors in addition to active duty troops. And eventually down to zero. Okay? You want a federal government in Afghanistan that can control its own territory. Whether it's democratically elected or it's an assembly of, of um, tribes that get together, I don't think we need to worry. I don't think we need to dictate what form of government Afghanistan has. But also, this plan removes the irritant of foreign troops in Afghanistan. It's a very, very sheltered, cloistered country with politics literally that goes from valley to valley to valley. And when they see foreign troops, it is an irritant. And to deny that is to deny reality. This program, this approach, puts mentors push that capacity building in Afghan uniforms attached to the Afghan forces under Afghan rules of engagement and takes away that irritant. Okay, what does it look like? Uh, and incidentally, that was a old picture I slid in there of uh, Blackwater guys on the roof of Najaf operating with uh, US Marines, again, under siege by uh, insurgent forces. So there is, there is precedence of the private sector and government guys working together. Three prongs. One, military mentor teams. That means attaching to each battalion and providing a, a almost a, like a skeletal support on which to build that Afghan unit. Air power. Do you remember in the weeks after 9-11, 100 or so CIA officers, 100 or so special forces active duty guys backed by US air power, and they devastated the Taliban, okay? It was a blend of high-tech American air power and SF guys riding horses. Literally, it was the first cavalry charge the US had been involved in, I think, since uh, the Spanish-American War, but it worked. And of course, some government support to support the Afghan military. These mentor teams. If you think about, if you if you read anything about Afghanistan right now, you realize that the uh, the one unit in the country that works is the Afghan Special Forces. Why? Because they have been trained and mentored by their U.S. Special Forces counterparts very effectively on a long-term basis, and they go in the field with them. But that's a very small part of the Afghan force. That's only about 12,000 man unit. The Afghan Army is a 180,000 man unit and it is not effective. So this approach takes veterans, okay, former active duty SOF, Special Operations Forces, from the US or NATO, and it sends them back there. And they go and live, train, and patrol with their Afghan counterparts. The other problem with how the US has been doing it is they send, remember, we've not been at war for 16 years in Afghanistan. We've been at war for one year 16 times. And actually more than that, it's worse than that. We send US forces there now, and they go for six to nine months. And they go and they operate in a certain area, in a certain valley, and they attach to a unit. But when they leave, all that experience and knowledge leaves with them. And they go home, and there's a completely new set of people that go there again and again and again and again, 16 years going. This approach takes those same people, as a contractor, we can rotate guys that way. They go in for 90 days, they live with that unit on the base, not at a separate base, on the same base, patrolling with that unit, training them in a direct one-to-one -one, um, uh, ratio. And when that mentor, then that contractor leaves, he goes home for 30 days and he goes back in for 90 days. And then home for 30 days and then back in. And we do that year after year after year, back to the same unit in the same valley so he knows the village chiefs. He knows who's who in the valley. That is how you win long-term insurgency. You have to provide the leadership, intelligence, communications, medical, weapons, and logistics expertise. It is that skeletal structure support, basically like a set of strong bones on which that Afghan battalion is built. And we would put them in 90 plus 91 battalions of the Afghan army to give them real offensive operational capability. Because right now, the Afghan military is largely defensive. They don't have the confidence. I feel terrible for an Afghan soldier who's on his base because his pay is getting ripped off, his food is sub-rate sub because the officers above have skimmed the money for it, 
He knows that if he leaves the base, he's not going to get any air support or fire support. His officers don't really know what they're doing. And if he gets hurt, he's probably going to die. Last month, and this is pretty standard per month by month, the Afghans Army, uh, Afghan security forces had 950 men killed in action, 300 wounded. Normally that ratio should be quite the inverse. Why? Because a military that gets proper medical care is at least going to have a lot more of their people survive. But that, that shows guys are dying of, of what should be non-life-threatening wounds. So you've got to do those basics well to support those units. Again, long term, and these contractors, okay, and this, that, that piece of it is only about 3,300 guys attaching to each battalion. By serving as adjuncts in the Afghan army, they are not mercenaries. I know that's a spicy word for people here. They are not mercenaries even by the UN definition in the law of war. This would allow us to go back to village stability operations, which was something very effectively done for a three-year period by US Special Forces, where they attached to and supported um, uh, units uh, at, at the village level to protect these villages. Now, aviation support. The US didn't even start building an Afghan Air Force until 2007. They started talking about it. They didn't first get an aircraft on the ground until most of the way until 2009. So we built an Afghan army to mirror the US Army, which is totally dependent on air power, and then didn't really give them an air force. Okay, and they, you have 80% illiteracy in the Afghan forces. So the idea of them coming up to speed, learning to read as it is, let alone servicing high-tech aircraft and doing the maintenance and flying them all the rest is, is a non-starter. So this, this is more like a flying tiger's model where we could surge in aircraft but have them attached to the Afghan Air Force. Okay, these, are, these would be provided aircraft leased with professional crews with an Afghan on board making any weapons release decision. And you, do the, you, you provide surveillance, you provide close air support, medevac, and of course mobility, allowing those Afghan units to go back on offense. It solves that Air Force gap until the US Air Force finally organizes what they're doing, but they're woefully behind. Ask any general, they give you an honest answer, the Afghan Air Force is completely def deficient, and that's one of the biggest reasons they've lost so much terrain. It's allowed the Taliban and the ISIS guys to go back to ancient siege tactics. You have this remote fire base of 300 Afghans, and there's three approach roads where you get to that place. And the Taliban roll in with a couple hundred guys, and they mine those roads, and they cut it off. And there's no resupply, and they're just sitting there under siege. And after 10 days, that poor Afghan base commander surrenders, gives it all up in the hope that, he, that his men are allowed to walk out. So they lose all their equipment, that base is taken off the map, and the Taliban wins again and again and again that way. If you have air power, where you can view it as, a temp, as an opportunity to pound on the enemy, to maneuver on them, and you make each one of those opportunities where the Taliban shows himself in force as a way to defeat them, it's a different outcome. So, third piece is governance, okay? Not to govern the whole country, but particularly, the, there, there are seven cores. Core is a big unit in a military. There are seven core logistics facilities where each of those battalions, okay, a battalion is about 600 people, a core is around 30,000 people, okay? Huge fraud, huge corruption, huge problems there. You put a few logist logist logisticians, auditors, accountants there to count stocks, to see where the stuff is going, to make sure the fuel contracts are, are proper, to make sure the, the catering, those kind of things, the essential, the essential um, logistics pieces are, are covered. Payroll assistance, you remove the gold soldiers. There is a huge amount, tens of thousands of people serving in the Afghan army, which aren't there, but somebody's collecting their pay. It's a huge source of theft. The US taxpayers spend about four to four and a half billion dollars a year on that fund, on the Afghan National Security Fund. I would say there's about 40% of that money you could save with proper governance function. Okay, so logistics function, payroll, procurement, making sure they buy the right stuff, that they're not buying used stuff or worthless stuff, and then some audit sales to go back in. You have to make, anytime you build an indigenous force, you have to pay the men on time, feed them on time, provide them medical care, and take care of their families if they die. 
If you don't do that, get out. Forget about it, because you are not building a military. Anytime you're building a unit to do this kind of operation in a difficult place, you have to have every link of that chain work. You could have your mobility right, cast, that's close air support. That is people dropping stuff on the enemy from an airplane. Maintenance, you could have them all right, but ah, we're out of ammunition. Why? Because he sold it. Because the corrupt officer sold it, or we've run out, or we can't get resupplied. The mentors are there to make sure every link of that chain stays intact. In the Wall Street Journal article I wrote in, that ran in um, May, I talk about the East India Company, not because I'm trying to colonize Afghanistan, but for 250 years, they built a security force which provided stability across the entire subcontinent. Okay? It was that kind of ratio where you have mostly locals, 19 out of 20 men were locals, but that 20th guy was a European professional. That's the same model you need here. This is, but it's under Afghan rule of law, under Afghan rules of engagement, providing that structural support, that cable link to make sure all those elements come together. Because if one of them goes, the whole thing falls apart quickly. Cost comparison. Like I said, 50 billion, it's going to creep up. That's before this additional surge of, uh, of 3,000 troops. This program, all up is 9.1. Let me break that down. That's, that's a continuation of the 4 billion you're spending on the Afghan forces now. That's another 2 billion for, the, uh, for a SOCOM element to stay. Keep a 2,000 man US Special Forces package in country so that you have a unilateral strike capability against the Taliban, ISIS, or whoever raises their head. But the rest of this, okay, 4 plus 2, 6, this is $3 billion to do this program with all the mentors in every battalion of the Afghan army, a huge amount of aircraft, 84,000 flight hours, and the governance piece. By my math, 50 billion is, uh, or 9 billion is a heck of a lot cheaper than, um, than 50 going up. So, other things that are included, you got to do medical quip properly, right? Well, we talked about uh, we talked about the um, uh, 3.4 plus the two for SOCOM, two combat surgical hospitals. Like I said, the the casualty rate is staggering. The Afghans need some additional intel support. You've heard about blue on blue or green on blue attacks, where an Afghan goes crazy and starts killing other Afghans, or he kills U.S. soldiers. Of course, that's a threat if you're putting mentors on the base with them. But I've had hundreds of my men living on bases with Afghans, and it's always worked. They can tell, and believe me, the Afghans can tell, when you have people there long term and you build that trust with them, you can tell who the radical ones are. It's, it's, not, it's, it's, not a, it's not a surprising thing. But the way the US is doing it now, they're effectively commuting, right? The US soldiers are living on another base. They have to fly, because they can't even safely drive a couple of miles over to the Afghan base, where they see them for a couple of hours a week, and then fly back. They're not going out on the base, they're not going out the wire with them, they're not going on missions with them. The approach that we would use, and that's why there's 36 people. When you think about a US Special Forces team, that is typically 16 man unit. I'm sending 36. It's effectively a double shot of that, so that every time a platoon of 30, or a company size unit of 100, or even the entire battalion goes out to do something, there are a lot of mentors attached, providing that key elements of leadership, intelligence, communications, medical, logistics support. <clears throat> Again, nationwide combat logistics support so that they get the stuff, the, the essentials, food, fuel, ammunition, and parts when they need it, and then obviously some PR support. We obviously, we know this would be uh, controversial. Going back to village stability operations, fixing that trust at the village level, protecting the population from the Taliban and ISIS. Believe me, the Taliban is not widely supported throughout Afghanistan. Building the mentor teams from the bottom up. The Pentagon doesn't right now do anything below the core level. So they're focusing on the top of the pyramid. You have the core, brigade, battalion, company, 
They don't go anything below that. They have really no visibility of what's going on on the ground level. This is the bottoms up approach, and it's much cheaper. I can run through these now and then take questions, because I think this might answer quite a few of your questions anyway. Why is this plan going to work? Okay. When I, uh, when I sold Blackwater in uh, 2010, um, it was a time of great problems with piracy off the coast of Somalia. And at that point, the government of UAE wanted to do something about it. They funded a program which built a police force of about a battalion size with mentors uh, that were attached, mostly South Africans. They built a police force. They went after the pirate logistics. That unit went active in June of 2012. No more successful pirate attacks the rest of 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. There was one attack in March this year, also ended by the same unit within four days with no ransom paid. There are lots of examples of this, of this kind of indigenous, building an indigenous unit with a little bit of attached expertise um, that makes it work. This is effectively the same model that the US Special Forces have done to build the Afghan Special Forces. But we are just applying it across the entire Afghan army. This is not, any, this is not original thinking. This is very, uh, very old school. Can't the military do this? If the United States Army were to deploy enough Special Forces mentors to do this, to send 3,300 people, you would take 65% of all the US Special Forces capability right now and send them just to Afghanistan. Okay? You deploy 65% of all your units, and that's taking them away from anywhere else in Africa they're working, that's taking them out of Iraq and Syria, anywhere else, and sending them there. And that leaves you only 35% of your unit to backfill them. So they just don't have enough people. If the US Army today or tomorrow could deploy 4,000 sergeants, warrant officers, and staff officers, right? the experienced people you need in a unit to do this, I would shut up. But they don't. They don't have nearly the people they had in Vietnam. We have a much smaller army. And this approach taps the veteran community of those very well-trained, the best-trained people in the world, uh, special forces operators to do this. And they're coming from the United States. They're coming from NATO countries. Canada, UK, France, Germany, Sweden, the Poles, um, Aussies, Kiwis, and, uh, and South Africans. Okay? Very professional Western militaries. Why can we do something the entire army can't? We're not trying to do something the entire army can't. We're not there. This is not some private army going to do fighting in Afghanistan. This is a solution that puts a skeletal structure in under the Afghan army, under their rules of engagement, under their chain of command, to provide operational capability to each of those battalions and give them uh, an offensive capability again so they can get outside the wire and engage against the enemy. We're not, trying to do, we're not going there to do the fighting. We're there to help the Afghans finish their fight. What do we do different? We're going we're gonna to leverage that pool of talent on the ground side, on the air side, and the logistics side. Already the DOD outsources almost all of their logistics to the private sector as it is there now. And even much of the maintenance for their aircraft. Army's focused on training the trainer. They have had limited success doing that because the up, the, well, for, first of all, the Afghan army continues because of these failures to pay the men on time and feed them and to support them in battle in that true feeling of despair an Afghan army uh, faces. The Afghan army right now deserts at a rate of 3% per month, 36% per year. So all that money you're spending, that $4 billion, one-third of that army is walking out the gate every year trying to replace that. Wash, rinse, repeat. 16 years on now, folks. The Afghan Special Forces, they have less than a 1% per month desertion rate. Why? They're paid a little bit more, they're paid on time, they're well-led, and they win in battle. If you give indigenous forces a taste of excellence, it works. One of my proudest uh, times, so my old company, we used to, um, 
uh, we were responsible for building the Afghan border police. So we ran four bases around the country. We'd have classes of three to 500 each of those. And I would go to many of the graduations. And the Afghans would stand so proudly holding that certificate at the end. Why? Because really it was the first thing they ever graduated from. And for the 10 weeks that we had them, it was the first time they were ever part of anything excellent in their lives. The food was served hot. The lights worked. The water flowed. There was ammunition for the guns. The instructor knew what he was teaching. There was fuel for the vehicles. All those basic things, those elements of the chain that have to work. And they were so proud because they actually got a taste of what life was supposed to be like. That's what this approach does, assuring that happens at each of those units. Past experience. Um, why would it be so much cheaper? This is a very easy argument to make. Um, I, would, I would challenge anybody to go after the private sector's tooth-to-tail ratio versus the military. Right now, in Afghanistan, I'll give you an example. So 4,000 US forces are, in addition, are, are deploying to Afghanistan now. Of those 4,000, you'd be lucky if 10, or maybe 8% of those guys actually leave the wire to go do something to help the Afghans. The ratio of support that the US Army requires to field any forces is staggering. We used to take over uh, Army uh, efforts over the past 16 years. And they had 166 people supporting 28. 28 guys to do the action, 138 people to support them. It's a staggering figure. We operate with the inverse ratio. And it's very simple to be cheaper. Isn't this simply about making money? Well, look, uh, like I said, there's tens of thousands of contractors in country. There's 26,000 going to 29,000. Um, this would cause a significant reduction in contractor spending, not an increase. Um, I don't think anybody would do this as a, uh, as a nonprofit. It comes with significant risk. Um, I've had to attend funerals for 41 of my men that were killed in action doing this kind of dangerous work for the US government. It is not easy. It's hard. And and has plenty of secondary and tertiary effects as well. So I think anybody that comes up with a plan and can implement it that saves uh, more than $40 billion a year and ties off our longest war, um, I guess should be allowed to make a buck. And lastly, again, reviewing that pool of people, there is an enormous well of talent that is underutilized. And the people that become rangers and special forces and SEALs and SAS troopers and legionnaires and KSK guys from Germany and the Grom from Poland and the four and five recce from South Africa, these are very capable, very talented guys. They're very good at that. They are the pro athletes. They are the elite pro athletes of their, of their kind. And to deny uh, tapping into that um, to keep doing the same thing we've been doing the last 16 years, I think, is an error. So, again, this thing, this, this conversation, this debate in the White House, the President resisted and resisted and resisted, finally rolled at the last minute uh, that last weekend. That being said, we were at 140,000 NATO troops in Afghanistan. That didn't work. An additional three or 4,000 is not going to move the needle. So I think this, this whole conversation will be revisited in three to six months. The Taliban get to vote as well. When Secretary Mattis arrived in Afghanistan last week, within two hours of his plane landing, 40 rockets hit the airfield in Kabul. And it took five hours to secure it. It was a five-hour firefight. This is in the capital city of the country where we've spent a trillion dollars, spending $50 billion now, and that was how the Taliban greeted him. I don't think that's an enemy right now that wants to make a deal and negotiate because they're winning. We need to put them on their backsides again like they were in the weeks after 9-11. If we do that relentlessly over a period of months and years and they see the United States has cost-effective staying power and the will to resist them, they will make a deal because they're tired as well. Even the Taliban has issues with ISIS. The Taliban fighters uh, are defecting to the more and more crazy radical ISIS groups. And we really can't afford to let Afghanistan go to complete 
you know, a, a complete basket case like Eastern Syria and Iraq did, because there are 20-some terrorist organizations that are resident there, and they, um, it is like a big fetid swamp that wants to, uh, to, to excrete terrorists. If you think about how the Roman Empire fell, they fell not because they were defeated military on the battlefield, but they, they, they were defeated because they ran out of money to pay their armies. Okay, the Goths and the Visigoths ended up walking into Rome unopposed. Now, they're not going to walk from Afghanistan, but if you view today's world as a pretty condensed one where it's a half day's plane ride away. There are a lot of bad things, as, as New Yorkers know, a lot of bad things can happen hatched in a cave with a little bit of manpower and uh, money and willpower. Uh, the reason they killed 3,000 people on 9-11 is because they didn't know how to kill 3 million. And so I think it's important to deny terror sanctuary cost-effectively on a sustainable basis. And with that, I'll take any questions. Yes? Is, is that a hard number, that 9 million, billion, sorry, um, that you talked about with the 36 people and all the attendant costs? Yep. Or it's, it's not subject to any vagaries of unintended consequences? The only, no, the only vagaries I estimated because the, the per head cost of a, of a SOCOM guy should be a million dollars per guy. That's actually what it costs. So I said 2,000 guys, $2 billion, done. Would SOCOM end up spending more? Possibly. But that's, again, DOD spending. That's not the, the, the only part of that 9.1 that would go to this effort is 3.1. That's it. So the, really, the 3.1 number is the hard number. So, uh, so, uh, so as and, oh, and, and let me just add, that includes all the food, fuel, munitions. That's every aircraft coming back empty every week. That's that's serious fighting. It's eighty-four thousand flight hours, parts, maintenance, you name it, all in. So Sir, there's there's two aspects of this, obviously, strategy and who does it. And and so, can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, I, I get why the Pentagon would resist if their alternative was they get to send ninety thousand troops in. But if they only get to send four thousand troops in, are they saying the strategy is the wrong place to employ them, or do you just think they're not capable of doing this? Or Secretary Mattis, at three different NSC meetings, said that my analysis of the root problems of what's going wrong in Afghanistan was the best he's seen. The three problem areas to be addressed. So I'll take that as a compliment. Now, he said, I don't agree with his policy prescriptions, but he believed that's what the DOD has to fix. And I, I just don't see them getting there. So, so but, but, but they're, sorry, just one, just one, so they think they, they can execute this strategy? Is that, is that really what the? They believe that these 4,000 paratroopers that they're sending are gonna do this train advised assist mission. But they're not. Here's the, the problem with that. When you send, so they're sending guys from the 82nd Airborne which is mostly 18, 20, and 22-year-olds or first-tour kids, okay? I'm gonna send guys that are 35 to 55. They've been doing this for 25 years. And they're still training and they're still hard. They're fit and capable. Now, I mean, I mean, just one other thing. The accountability issue, essential to, to resolve. And, you know, in talking to Inspector General, of CIA and uh, general counsel from the uh, from the Pentagon, this force can be uh, because they're going to be attached to the Afghan army, serving under Afghan ROE, still be held accountable under the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Okay, so any any evil act committed by a person by one of these contractors in country is tried there by a military jury in country, handled through that system. So every other contractor from any of those countries can sign up for that, would have to sign up for that, and uh, incarceration to be done back in the states if convicted or back to their country of record on a state-to-state... -state we can go to... I'm so sorry, can we get... Yeah. Sorry, but we're, we ran a little late. We're running a little late. I'm sorry. You might be able to catch up. Then. We're going to do Hope and then Terry and then Bob. Sure. Um, Hope, can you talk about what you saw in Afghanistan in 1977? It was such a complex tribal society. It, they had to work out their own way of getting along and having not really a national government, but just a federation. I, I completely agree. This idea of a super state central government in Kabul is a fool's errand. Right. So given that, then I understand why your plan 
is um, going to effectuate the United States goals. What I worry about is that it's not the goals of the people who are fighting in the Afghan army. And I, I, I just wonder if they're not very disparate, the various, what they're really fighting for. What is their endgame? Because, yeah, this, this suits us, but this might not be what is their ultimate goal. The, the, well, the, the main factor of any Afghan I talk to is to not be abandoned because they don't want to go back to rule under the Taliban or ISIS, one. Two, this approach, I would change, uh, it, it would change the recruiting path and the promotion path of the Afghan forces. And I would have ethnic Tajiks fighting in a Tajik area, Uzbeks in an Uzbek area, Pashtuns in a Pashtun area. Um, it will be much more regional focused because again, we're not there to create and support some super state. Kabul can be the capital. A Afghanistan had never been a, um, a super state ever for millennia. So why are we trying to make that one now? I agree. And this plan allows that to happen versus the trajectory we're on now. Uh, thank you for your service, first of all. I was a Marine officer on the ground in Vietnam in 1968-69, two years. Yep. Uh, you know, the context of what you presented, I mean, I don't disagree with the word that you said. I mean, I, I think it's strategically something that makes a lot of sense. But I still am wrestling with practically on a daily basis uh, why we're there. And I just love your insights, other than the Terra, to really better understand uh, why we're there and how long we should be there because of your judgment. So, uh, um, thank you for that question. Um, as we talk about that, that meeting that I should have been at, at, the, at Camp David to present a different approach, let me take you back to what happened five days after 9-11, okay, when the Pentagon was on fire, the, the towers were down, in a very dark time in America. The Pentagon's approach, the Pentagon's offer that they gave to George Bush was missile strikes, bombing in a ranger raid. That's all they wanted to do that fall, right after 9-11. They wanted to do a conventional invasion of Pakistan. But they couldn't get that done. They didn't want to do it before the Afghan winter. They were going to wait till April. That was what the, with a $600 billion budget, that's the best the Pentagon came up with. What did the agency say? Mr. President, give us a billion dollars, the authorities, and in three weeks, the flies will be walking on the eyeballs of our enemies. It's a very clear, very dark line, but it, they worked. Arm a few of the tribes, a little bit of air power, go, run hard. If, and, and, and when they had Bin Laden cornered at Tora Bora in that valley, what did they ask for? Please, Pentagon, send troops, send troops, send troops, send rangers. They wouldn't do it. Bin Laden scoots out of the country. If they had, if they had killed him at Tora Bora, this would have been done. The United States could have pulled back because the Taliban was devastated, I think the tribes would have worked it out. But the conventional army, okay, the soft guys, the agency guys, put huge pressure, devastated the Taliban al-Qaeda over those first few months. But as the conventional army showed up, okay, because remember the Pentagon is about money and power. Any bureaucracy looks to expand its influence. When, when conventional army showed up, everything slowed down. And then the nation building exercise started. That's where we went wrong. But having been there this long, if we just pull out now, the image I don't want to have is this 1975 image of that helicopter lifting off the embassy roof in Saigon, which is exactly what you'd have to do in Kabul because the, the barbarians would be at the gate. So I want to give the United States an option to keep the lights on in Afghanistan, to keep the bad guys in check, and for the rest of the US forces to leave with their heads held high. That's why, at a fraction, for the interest cost of what we're spending there now. Sir. Two questions. One, um, if, they, if they take your plan, is it a permanent plan? Or do you see an end when your guys can come home? And secondly, how do you, what has to happen inside the White House for your plan to actually get it done? One of the other great 
errors the United States has made. And I, I, I'll, get, um, I'll get Patricia to send around the, uh, the Wall Street Journal article I, uh, I wrote. We've been there for 16 years now and there's still no mining law. There's a trillion dollars of value in the ground in Afghanistan, rare earth elements, uh, uh, energy, you name it, significant. No mining law, no ability to take capital, apply it, build a mine, employ people. The British used to say that a functioning workshop is better than a battalion of soldiers. Setting security in some of these areas that matter allows capital to come in and to create thousands, tens of thousands of jobs. Because you can build a mine and you can do the high capital cost way, or you can do it with a lot of people with picks and shovels. I'd be happy to pay and employ thousands of Afghans with picks and shovels because it's better than what the Taliban can pay them. And we literally soak up that labor force that way. So on a phase-out basis, I think this, my approach would have to be in, 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 in play for probably four to five years, which is about the, the time uh, for those Afghan units to, to be practical. There might be 10% or 20% of these contracted guys stay there forever. But again, they can be paid for by the mining companies, uh, by the tax revenue paid to the government that, that for, for, the, for the offtake uh, taxes that they pay. Questions. I have Chinese They've tried, but again, there's there's really no mining activity going on. I mean, the, the second largest copper deposit in the world is Masainak, and it's only 30 kilometers south of Kabul. Right now, the thing is, when I listen to your plan, it sounds like a plan I think I've, I've heard before, and a plan that I thought was great when it was explained to me. Except the problem is that it was explained to me by my father um, as he was on his way to Vietnam. Um, about 45, 50 years ago. And it was Vietnamization, advisors, strategic villages, um, I mean, the, the whole, basically all of the individual points you laid out, the only one you didn't mention was land reform, which was a really big thing in, 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 in Vietnam. Which we've also completely ignored in Afghanistan. Right, right. Uh, and, yeah, um, you know, fighting corruption, all this stuff. Um, it didn't work in Vietnam, even though it sounded like such a brilliant plan, um, what is it about uh, Afghanistan that will allow this plan, which sounds so much like the end game, basically, the last four to five years of what we were supposedly trying to do in Vietnam, what would make it different in Afghanistan? The thing I disagree with on, on you uh, is the counterinsurgency plan in Vietnam worked. Okay, between the Phoenix program and MACV, the Viet Cong had a root canal. That were not they, they were devastated. What finally tipped South Vietnam over was a massive conventional invasion from the north, and U.S. Congress cutting off funds and munitions, denying the South Vietnamese the weaponry even to defend themselves. It was a very much a conventional invasion. Three years. In 1975, that finally tipped it over. Okay, really quick. I'm sorry, we're, we're just a little short on time. I'm sorry, that's a very complicated question that deserves a longer answer. But Don, real quick. Yeah, um, it's more of something I just, that you started off, I think, in your discussion that um, might just help end it. I grew up in the Navy and was married to a Marine and worked with Navy Special Forces with Oxford. The rules of engagement. I've been to so many funerals, you know, so many wounded guys. That is what they say is what held their hands behind the back. So that is the difference. I think you're comparing Vietnam to what these guys have gone through. They're they're there. They want to do their job, but they have to wait for a phone call or an order. And I mean, again, when you're a when you're a trooper in contact fighting for your life, and you have to call and get permission from a lawyer sitting a thousand miles away in an air-conditioned cubicle, it is not a serious way to wage war. That is seriously undervaluing our fighting men on the ground right. trying to get their job done. They don't cover uniforms. It's such a bigger conversation that the media didn't cover because of the last administration's rules of engagement that were unbelievable. 
But even so, I, I don't even fault the administration as much as I still fault the Pentagon because I think this president would have granted very different ROEs even sooner to the Pentagon had they asked for it in Afghanistan. But the fact that you can have multiple open-air parades of hundreds of your enemy driving down the street in your captured equipment and it doesn't chafe at every commander that sees that happening, you have the wrong commanders there. And so we have a, we have a flag officer corps that is not, um, well, we'll leave that to another conversation. So in the end. Sorry, real quick and then the end. Have you tried or been successful at getting anyone on the Afghanistan side within the Afghanistan ANA or They were very, they, they liked this plan very much. I've done numbers of interviews on Afghan television and have had very, very positive response. Um, the big issue from the Afghans is they didn't want to do anything seen to disagree with anything from the Pentagon because they are so beholden. And um, they mainly wanted to, uh, to make sure the United States did just walk away because they realized they would really, really be in a, uh, in a bad spot. It would be cheaper. So the United States has spent like $8 billion on poppy eradication and there's 40% more now than ever was. Um, whether you put a processing facility in and you buy it from them at the edge of the field, and process it or even burn it. But here's the thing. You know, if you're a farmer in upstate New York and you grow corn, um, you don't sell it to the end customer, right? You, you sell it to a co-op who sells it to a processor, who sells it to a wholesaler, who sells it to a retailer, find to the end customer. All that value chain doesn't exist for people that want to grow legitimate crops. And it's the failure, just like we failed to do a mining, a mining law or an energy law, we've never put adequate agriculture infrastructure in place for silage, for transport, for all the rest, to actually give people a chance to grow something other than poppies. Because believe me, my, my old company, we built the Afghan Narcotics Interdiction Unit. We made the largest hashish bust in counter-narcotics history, 262 metric tons. It was a billion dollars of hash alone. We destroyed thousands and thousands of tons of opium paste. Those poor farmers, when you look at the value chain of opium, the poor farmers are not getting made much. They're not driving around a Mercedes. Okay? They're getting paid, they're getting prepaid at the beginning of the season, so they're absolutely beholden to the Taliban okay, to, make their, to make their crop. And they come in and harvest it, and then they go to fight. The value, the uptick in, in the illicit profit occurs once it's after it's harvested and it's sold and processed and, and smuggled up into Europe. That, it's not that hard with a little bit of ingenuity in the free market to displace them as growers. Well, thank you so much. Thank you.